Good morning, Crossbridge family, and welcome to Crossbridge Online. I'm so glad that you're here today with us. And if you're a guest with us, I especially want to welcome you and just say thank you so much for joining us. And I want you to know that my hope for you is the same as my hope for every single person who's watching right now and who will watch later. And that simply is this. No matter where you find yourself in your faith today, I hope and I pray that you would take one step towards Jesus because that is what we are all about here at Crossbridge. And you've come while we are in week two of a three-part series called The Gift, a series where we're looking at the different gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. And we started by establishing last week that gifts are really unique when we give them to people because the more we understand someone, the more valuable the gift that they get becomes. Do you know what I mean? The more you understand them, the more or the better gift that you could get them. In order for us to understand the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that Jesus got, if we can want to understand them better, we need to understand Jesus. So we've been looking at the gifts and looking at Jesus, and we've been really trying to figure out what do these gifts mean by looking and starting in Matthew chapter 2. It'll be our passage from last week, this week, and on Thursday, our Christmas Eve service. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you're not familiar with the story, here's how it goes. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are pretty weird gifts. We can all agree on that. And why would these wise men give Jesus these gifts? Now, some fun parts about this little um, scene is that we talked last week uh, about how there was definitely more than three wise men. I don't care what your nativity scene says, there's definitely more than three. And if you look at verse 11 in Matthew chapter 2, there's a really specific word that's used, that these magi travel and they show up at Mary's house. They show up at Mary's house. And, you know, the Greek word for house here means house, right? It means house. It means residency. What we've got here is the wise men are not showing up on the day of Jesus's birth. They're not showing up at the stable or the cave that he was born in with animals surrounding him. These men are showing up at their home. This is a gaggle of wise men with all their gear showing up at this house like it's a DoorDash delivery that's about to go down. The truth is, is that most scholars would agree that these wise men are showing up, again, not at the birth, but at the time that they're showing up, most would agree it's in between one, one and a half, or maybe two years old, Jesus at this point. So look, think about that for a second. We're not talking about eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. We're not talking about this infant Jesus who eats, sleeps, poops, repeats day in and day out. Right now, we're talking about toddler Jesus. They're showing up to a home with toddler Jesus. If you took that little chunky baby of your manger set, and you took that chunky baby out and put a two-year-old in there, what would happen to that nativity scene? You would never find those pieces again. 
right? It just doesn't work. A two-year-old, do you have a two-year-old in your home? You know what that's like? I can see some of you. Have you ever met a two-year-old before? I don't even need to be with you, and I can see your eyes getting all big because you're like, oh, I know too. They attach a word terrible to that, and I don't know if Jesus had terrible twos, but I know two is really, really hard. I used to judge parents of two-year-olds. You know, when, when you see them out with their kids and they start to cry over not getting candy, they used to, you know, when, when two-year-olds talk back and they tell their parents, no, no, and they lay on the floor and they just cry until you drag them around. Um, when they bang on the tables or when a parent brings a two-year-old to a restaurant and they're like, ah, and you're like, whoa, give the kid an iPhone or something. Like just, just you know, or, and when they do give them the iPhone, I can't believe they do that to their kids. You know, I, I, I used to judge. I totally will admit it, until I had a kid and had a two-year-old, I, I don't judge anymore. I see them and I go, mm, I remember. I sympathize. I give them the, I see you. I pray. In Matthew chapter 2, we have, we have these magi showing up. And it tells us that they bowed down and they worshipped. They bowed down and they worshipped a two-year-old in this story. And when they do this, they open up these treasure chests of gifts. And one's got, you know, frankincense, like we talked last week. Does Jesus have any idea that this is going to represent his high priesthood? No, no he doesn't care. Look, it's, it's frankincense. It doesn't mean anything. When they open up gold, which is going to represent his kingship. And we're going to talk about that on Thursday at 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock. Make sure you RSVP to get your box. But, I mean, when he sees the gold, what's he going to do? Is he going to be like, wow, this is valuable. No, he's going to say shiny things. Put it in my mouth, right? That's what he's going to do. And when he opens up a giant chest of myrrh, did he understand at that moment, outside of the value that his parents probably understood, as most scholars would agree that this was going to represent him as the suffering servant or the Lamb of God. This myrrh is the gift that we will be focusing on today. And you know, it's funny is um, most people have no idea what myrrh is. Outside of like a killer Scrabble word you could use if you have no vowels and you hit triple word. I, I mean, it's just something that we toss at the end of the three gifts of Jesus. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Yeah, it's fine. I, I get gold. I can buy oil and frankincense. Myrrh doesn't matter. Believe it or not, myrrh is actually this really, really valuable gum-like substance, okay? It's a gum-like substance that you would get a sense of, and it's mentioned about 17 and used about 17 different times in the Bible. It's unbelievably valuable and hard to come by, and the way that you would get myrrh is by the process of, it's something called bleeding a tree, and I know you're probably thinking, like, you can't bleed a tree, it doesn't have blood, uh, but, but what I'm about to explain to you, you just got to follow me for a second because there's going to be a huge payoff in the end when you understand this process. And you probably understand it already, especially right now in the Christmas season, what this means. So, you know, in my home, when Christmas time comes, 
One of the things that we do is I've been trying to train my son Jam since he was about three years old to pick out the family tree. And my wife loves live trees, so he picks out the, the tree of the year. And so the first couple of years I had to kind of coach him along and I made the choice, but he really chose it, you know. Uh, but recently, over the last couple of years, he has picked the tree 100%. And what's funny is, is that this year we went out and since my wife likes real trees, we went out to cut down a tree. And as we went out to the farm, it was very, very funny because this year the tree that Jimmy picked out looked like this. Actually, that's not true. That's the tree he thought represented 2020. Um, really, this is the tree that Jimmy picked out. Now, if you see the size of that tree, uh, just so you know, my house is not that big, <laughs> okay? It's not. So the whole bottom half of that tree was pretty close to dead um, underneath, and then the top was very, very alive. So uh, once we flag this guy down to come chop down the tree, he chops it down, he cuts off the dead piece, and he brings it back up to the front. So now I have to get this thing onto my car, rope it to the top, get it into my house, and up these stairs, pull it around, trim it all up and then stand it up and hope it doesn't go through the roof like in the office. And so when I get this tree all good and ready and I go to start to water it, maybe you experience something like I do if you have live trees in your home. That moment when you go, why does it smell like pine everywhere I go? And you realize the sap is all over you. You realize that if you weren't wearing a long sleeve shirt, your arm hair starts to stick together and you're thinking, this is not going to be good. There's no soap that gets that out, right? If you have to start to cut away and trim those branches, do you know when that ooze starts to come out, that sap starts to come out, the tree is bleeding. It's, 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 it's letting out what's inside. And in order to get myrrh, what you would have to do, especially in the first century, is they would find a specific type of tree and they would begin to repeatedly wound the tree. They would tenderize this tree to begin then to slash and to cut very strategically into the tree so that all of the resin that is inside would begin to come out of the tree. And instead of being worried about it getting on their skin or anything, they would step away and they would go through a series of trees like this to let that sap, that, that ooze, harden up. And when it hardened up, you would get this resin. This resin. You would begin to take this and sell it off because it would be used in perfumes. It would be used in um, incense, a lot of incense. A lot of oils would use it. But myrrh, believe it or not, was used for two things mainly. The first thing is that it was like an antiseptic. And uh, it's used actually in Mark chapter 15 and verse 22 in Jesus' story on the cross, it says this, that they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. What they did there was they offered him wine drugged with this gum because they knew it would deaden the receptors. It would, it would ease up his pain just a little bit because there was such agony. And he refuses that because he says, I need to experience all of the pain of this. All of the weight of the sins is on me. More commonly though, myrrh wasn't just at the cross. Myrrh is actually used as part of the embalming process and the death process in which most first century people and before, when they passed away, they would use it. We see this with Jesus at his burial. If you jump over to John chapter 19, we read this in verse 
38 to 40, it says this. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, he asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave him permission, Joseph came and he took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices in a long sheet of linen cloth. Now this is a substantial amount of myrrh. When you think of 75 pounds of this little bit of resin that they would have to go and combine with myrrh in order to allow the body to decompose correctly, this was an unbelievably costly gift. I can't even imagine how much the cost of this special burial of Jesus would have been. But make no mistake, the gift that was given that makes no sense to many of us is the gift that is used at his very death. And the question we have to ask is why? would this gift have to be used? Why would myrrh represent this suffering servant of ours? And if we want to understand myrrh and Jesus as our suffering servant, we actually have to go back about 700 years. 700 years before this moment, there was a prophet whose name was Isaiah. And many of you, if you soap with us at Crossbridge, you've been reading Isaiah this week along with some other gospel passages. And as you're going through Isaiah, Isaiah talks 700 years before Jesus about things that this coming king, that this Messiah for the nations, this suffering servant would experience. He was so specific about some of these things. And the question is though, why would Jesus have to die and us have to use myrrh? Why was he our suffering servant? And it actually tells us that You know what? Jump with me. Isaiah 53. We're going to jump to verse 6. It says this in verse 6. We'll only read the first half. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. You know, Isaiah here says that we're like sheep. Now, unfortunately, that is not a compliment right here. And Many people in our culture, especially if you see on Facebook, if you see a group of people going after something that you don't agree with, you would say, well, they're all sheep. They're just following everybody else. And here, Isaiah says, you know what? Everyone is like a sheep. He he doesn't say like everyone's like a lion. They're beastie and they can get it. He doesn't say that, you know, it's not a compliment. Like everyone's like an eagle. They could soar, you know. I mean, unless he's referring to the Eagles from the NFL this year, then it's kind of still not a compliment. But, you know, um, I'm a Giants fan. Leave me alone. We're not doing that great either. Washington's going to win. It's bad. But he says, you're a sheep. You're a sheep. He's basically saying, listen, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed. I mean, you could train a lot of animals, right? You could train dogs, you could train birds, you could train elephants, you could train lizards, you could train a pig, but but you can't train a sheep, can you? Have you ever gone to the circus and, and watched the trained sheep show? No. Have you ever gone on to a gone, gone to a friend's house who owns a sheep 
and watch that sheep sit. Oh, that could have been really bad. Sheep sit. No, no, we haven't done this. No one does this because you can't train a sheep. Why? Because sheep are basically weak. They're witless and they're wanderers. Sheep are very, very weak. I mean, when, when they go to get attacked um, by a bear or a lion or a coyote, these things that are strong, what does a sheep do? Does a sheep bear its fangs? No, it doesn't have any. Does it show its claws? No, it doesn't have any. Does it run away really fast? No, it waddles slowly and wanders, and it, it's not smart. It's defenseless. It's got nothing. It's, it's weak. But it's witless. It, it's not smart. If, if it gets attacked in a group, does it say to one sheep, like, listen, you run that way, I'll run this way, and, and then neither of us will get, like, only one's going down, 50-50 shot. No, they huddle together and basically say to the predator, Take your pick. There's no wisdom there. They're not smart. They just follow what everybody else does in the crowd. When one sheep does stupid sheep stuff, another sheep does stupid sheep stuff. You know, back in July of 2005, this is a real story. You can go look this up. There was a village in Turkey that had 50, 1,500 sheep follow each other off a cliff. I, I'm not kidding you. 1,500 sheep followed each other off a cliff. They begin to go towards this cliff, and sheep one goes off, and sheep two, and three, and four, and five. And, and at no point in this process did any sheep stop and say, you know what, this is not a good idea. 1,500 sheep go off. Uh, unfortunately, the first 400 of those sheep died. The, the other 1,100 didn't. They had like a fluffy pillow to land on, but they literally would roll off and just wait to be pushed aside. We mentioned last week that, let's be honest, we're like sheep sometimes, aren't we? And we make excuses for it. If everybody's doing 80 on 295, I'm just going with the flow of traffic. I'm right with everybody else. When Isaiah says here in Isaiah 53, and he calls a sheep, this is not a compliment. He's saying that you are wanderers. When a sheep gets distracted by something, if he's not following another sheep, if something shiny is there and he's like, ooh, he begins to go. And we read passages throughout the Bible of, of Jesus even in Luke 15, talking about going after a lost sheep. Why? Because sheep wander. And when they go off, they're not worried about getting back. They just leave. When the prophet Isaiah says all of us like sheep have gone astray, he's not commenting on our amazingness. He's saying that, that you need help because you wander when you're looking for happiness and you begin to see a purchase that you think might make you happy, an experience that might bring you joy, and yet you're still left unsatisfied because the path that most of us take is not God's path. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and we choose our path over God's path. But this passage continues, so let's look again at the whole verse of Matthew 53, verse 6. It says this, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him, the suffering servant, the sins of us all. The myrrh, 
that is necessary at Jesus' death is necessary because of us. His death was because of us. A death that happened and that was explained 700 years earlier was necessary because we, like sheep, choose our own path. And because our own path has sin and it separates us from God, God says there has to be a payment for sin. And the way that Jesus would die, would you believe this, was predicted 700 years before. If you jump right back into Isaiah 53, just look at what verse 5 has to say. But he was pierced. In the Hebrew, that word is wounded. But he was pierced and wounded for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped. In the Hebrew, it's slashed. He was whipped and slashed so that we could be healed. And that word healed, at the end of that, is repaired. So that we could be repaired and made right. Do you, do you remember how myrrh was produced? You have to find that tree. And you got to begin to tenderize that tree and slash that tree and whip that tree and wound it repeatedly to pierce it with knives and scorch trunk so that it will bleed. And when it does, you leave the bleeding until the process is complete. And then gathering these precious resources, you use them to bring health and to healing to those who are alive and comfort to those who are dying and in death. You know, 700 years after this prophecy, we have a very detailed record of how Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, died. One night, he, he found himself eating dinner with his best friends and then being sold out by one. And he took his 11 with him and he went into the garden of gethsemane to pray and and the agony of what was about to come was so heavy on him the weight of what was going to come the cross for him of giving up his life was so heavy that he began to in agony plead with god god if there's any other way that we could do this would you take this cup from me would you take this and he begged god he was suffering so deeply that he began to sweat blood. The medical term is hemosidriosis. It's something that when you're experiencing such intense trauma, the capillaries that you have begin to burst and blood begins to mingle with sweat and come out of your pores. And he falls to the ground and he simply says that my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, that he is so beaten by what is about to come. And that's when one of the twelve, Judas, sells him out with a sign of intimacy, a kiss, and betrays his master. It's then that Jesus is taken and he's falsely accused. He's thrown through a couple of sham, really, really shady courts. To get to a point where he's before someone, the, the, the ruling authority who could let him go. And that ruling authority doesn't. And instead, 
listens to the cries of the very people who celebrated him coming in a couple days ago to Jerusalem, who are now crying for him to be hung on a cross as they yell, crucify him. And so the order is given to have an innocent, sinless man crucified. You see, crucifixion is an art form in execution. And I say that because it was something the Romans designed to specifically bring the most amount of pain to any living human being. And when they got you to the point of death, they would back it up just a little so that you wouldn't die and bring you back only to do it again multiple times. And so here we find Jesus falsely accused, falsely arrested, condemned, and now sentenced to crucifixion. Jesus at that point would have been stripped bare, publicly exposed, feeling complete humiliation, ashamed. They would have taken a crown of thorns, which was about an inch to two inch thorns, and they would have weaved it together and jammed it on his head and said, here's our king. They would have beat him. And, and they had signet rings, which are huge rings that you'd have on your hand. And they would begin to lay into him. The bats that they would take would drive those thorns even deeper into his head. And naked and disfigured in his face, they would hang him over a stump so that his full back was exposed and they would take a whip that had nine ends to it. And in those nine ends, each had a bit of bone or a bit of metal or lead that would be weaved into it. So that when one whip came, it was nine, but it would tenderize the muscles of the back. And it would begin to dig in and rip away. And you would begin to see organs and bone. And 39 times they would do this to him, taking him to within an inch of death and pulling him back. This whole process was meant for him to bleed out. And at that point, they would take about a 100-pound crossbar, put it onto his shoulders, and make him walk about 650 yards, this way of suffering, up to the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, to be publicly mocked. And when he finally got to that place, bleeding out, no strength, no energy, they would lay him onto this cross, and with seven-inch nails, they would drive them through his hands and through his feet. And with no delicacy, they would lift this cross and wait for it to fall into its place. You see, a person who was being crucified never bled out. That's not how they died. They would be hanging to a point to where their knees were just about bent. And in order to breathe, because their hands were higher, they would have to push themselves up so that their lungs could gather the oxygen they needed. And, and, and they would use their wrists to try to hold themselves up, but there's nails. They would miss arteries on purpose to make this last longer. And, and once the shoulders got dislocated, you would have to rely on the strength of your legs. And here is Jesus, 
slowly, slowly, slowly dying at every breath. As his blood poured out, and this was only the beginning, because what I believe could be the very worst part was when this innocent one who had never sinned In a moment, he bore and carried the weight of the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future, that all of our mistakes were laid on him. He became everything that is vile, filthy, and unholy. He became sin. And in that moment, God, his Father, in all his righteousness, in all his holiness, in everything that he is who cannot be present with sin, has to turn his face on his very own son. And his son cries out, my God, my God, why have you turned on me? Why have you forsaken me? Why is it that you are gone? And that's the moment they offer him a stick with wine and myrrh. Oh, something's wrong, please. Take this dull, this pain, and he rejects that pain. To say, not my will, but your will be done. I will carry the weight of the sins of the world. I will finish what my Father sent me to do. And in his very last breath, he declares to Telestai. It was a fisherman's term. It simply means it is finished. Into your hands, God, I commit my spirit. He gave his life for the forgiveness of sin. And I know that it feels a little weird talking about the death of Jesus when we're about to celebrate his birth in a couple of days, but do you remember that at his birth, this is the gift that's given? That these wise men door-dashed Mary and they brought these chests of everything that's valuable, pointing to the priestlyhood, to the kingship. But this chest of myrrh, of resin, that was bled from a tree, that was waited on, that was used to help people feel better, to cure some sicknesses, and to help comfort families in death, would represent the pain and the suffering of our Lord Jesus. And when you understand the magnitude of Christ's suffering and the depths of his love, you cannot casually say then, well, you know what? It's, it's easy to be a Christian at Christmas and Easter. Like, I'll give it those two days. I'll be fine. I'll go to church when I have time. I'll pray over food. It feels spiritual. It's obligation, right? No, no, no. no. When you understand the magnitude of beating and suffering that the Lamb of God went through for your sin and the massive amount of sin that I have, when we understand the hugeness of his, his suffering, we stop and we can, just like the Magi, bow down and say, everything I have is yours. I could never pay for my own sin, but what you have done, your bleeding out has completed me. It has covered me. You've done what I cannot do. And I need to tell you that the greatest gift that we have ever received is the blood of Jesus because it covers us. It brings healing to us. It's by his wounds, by his stripes, by his slashes that we are restored 
to God. You know, this week I, I found myself watering our, our Christmas tree, and it's really sharp this year. And so every time I go near it, it pricks me. And I used to get really ticked when this happened, and I was like, I hate this stupid tree. I have found such a gift in this tree because with every prick, I'm reminded of a piercing. Every time I get under that tree and I begin to pour water in and sap gets on whatever clothes that I'm wearing or somehow gets on me, instead of getting frustrated, I think about this resin. I think about my Savior who bled for me and that his very birth was given a gift that would be used at his death that would mean something to me. Family, I I don't know where you are with Jesus today, and I don't know if you understand how much God loves you that he would send his only son, and that as we approach Christmas, it's not just about a baby, it's not just about a presence, it is purely about the love of God for you and for me, that God would send his only son to go through this horrific, painful experience when he did nothing wrong because of God's great love for us. And I want to tell you that if you have never embraced that love personally, you are missing out on the greatest gift. And I want to give you an opportunity to say to Jesus, I didn't understand that you did this for me. I didn't know you loved me that much. I want to follow you. And for those of you who are disciples of Jesus, who maybe you've become complacent and think, you know, it's fine, it's, 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 it's eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, I'm good to go. Would you remember as you water your trees, you have your resin, as you smell those incense around your house, that you, you are so loved that God would go through all of that for you. And I pray that it would reframe how Christmas looks. It's not a day of celebration of presents, a day of celebration of the greatest gift we've ever been given the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you've never accepted Jesus, would would you just pray with me right now? Just wherever you are, out loud, in your heart, it, it doesn't matter. Would you just pray with me? Jesus, I confess my sin, and I thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry for all the pain, for all the agony, but I am so grateful for your forgiveness, for your love, and for your mercy in my life. Would you forgive me my sins? Fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I can live and love like you. Jesus, I want to follow you with everything I have. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, I simply want to ask you, would you send us a quick email at prayer at crossbridgecc.org so that we can help you as you take your next steps in pursuing Jesus and what that means to live like Christ because what you have received today is the greatest gift you could ever have. And for those of you who have already embraced that gift, I simply want to make one request of you today. Would you do me a favor and invite someone to Christmas Eve with you? The coolest thing now is you don't even have to be, ask them to come to a theater with you. They don't even have to leave their home, but you could share those invites. RSVP for four o'clock, seven o'clock. You could still make time with family or friends if you're quarantined. You could still do what you need to do, but you know that there's someone who needs to know that Jesus loves them. 
That's what Thursday's all about. Do not miss the opportunity at one of the most crucial times in people's lives of 2020, when everyone's asking questions, to introduce them to the Savior of the world. Have courage, take strength. You're not a sheep. You are victorious in Christ. Crossbridge, go invite and let people know that you love them. I can't wait to see you at Thursday, four o'clock, seven o'clock. Make sure you RSVP. We'll see you then.